Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Hebrews. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, we have basically just finished up chapter 7, and maybe we got a little ways into chapter 8, but for the sake of it, um, we will just start at chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the section we have, um, chapter 8 is okay. Chapter 9 starts to get really challenging, and that for a number of reasons. Um, not only are the details challenging, trying to figure out what he means by his particular language, which, uh, again, in, in the details, they don't matter per se for his larger argument, but it's still tough to figure out. And then, in this section... Um, his larger argument is really hard to wrap your head around, and there's several possibilities um, available to us, but we'll simply talk through it. I'll do the best I can for you. There are parts of this that are enigmatic and mysterious, and we might not have a definitive answer as much as we like. Um, if you do have particular questions, I may even go digging around in John Kleinig's great text on this, but... You know, I kept waiting for him as I was studying for this. I kept waiting for him to make it simple, and he never did. <laughs> it just always remains really challenging. So uh, with that in mind, we will, uh, we will go forward boldly into chapter 8 and then tentatively, humbly into chapter 9. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying, well, what have they been saying? Again, it is that Christ has been confirmed as this high priest of God by an oath, and because of his superiority, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Um, so now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister, and now when we see this language of minister here in Hebrews, we're thinking of like a liturgical role. That's the language. So sometimes um, language of minister in English can just mean servant, but that's not what's going on here. Minister is the technical like liturgia term. Hey, it would be, I think, a little misleading to call him the liturgist or he's liturgizing in the holy places, but um, that's the sense, is he's the, the liturgist, the one, the officiant, maybe we would even call it, in the holy places. Now, where are the holy places? This is a foretaste of the feast to come. The holy places are in heaven. So he's enthroned in heaven. Now, that would be kind of like what we would call left-hand kingdom, but he's also ministering as the high priest in the holy places, which are in heaven, and that would be what we would call the right-hand kingdom. So you see the, the right-hand kingdom and the left-hand kingdom combined in Christ. He's true king and true high priest. The holy places in view are in heaven in this section. So a minister in the holy places, chapter 8, verse 2, in the true tent... 
that the Lord set up, not man. Right? So the tent below, the tabernacle below, that then becomes the temple, that's all made with human hands, set up by man. And he's contrasting this earthly reality with the heavenly reality in which Christ ministers. Um, this, these holy places in the true tent, the true tabernacle or temple which exists in heaven that the Lord has set up, not man. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Okay, what is this saying? Um, if you were a priest on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, because the priests on earth are the Levitical priests, and they have the prescribed sacrifices. But he is a heavenly priest, after the order of Melchizedek. In this sense, when Christ goes into heaven, he's both coronated and chosen to be the high priest. So, I mean, even in his earthly rule, we would say he's the king and he's the high priest. But the truth is, in a, even in, in a chronological sense, not until his ascension. And it's why, like, the ascension as a, as a, ecclesiastical rite or a day that we observe is like one of the most underappreciated days. Like, oh, ascension, ah, oh, he took off. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, no, this is the day where he ascends into heaven and is enthroned there, it's his coronation, and becomes the high priest serving in the holy places made without hands. So the ascension is so underplayed in our theology. It's massive in biblical theology. All right, so then chapter 8, verse 5. They, the Levitical priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, this is the Old Testament tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." Kleinig says on the mountain he saw the heavenly holy places, the heavenly tabernacle. And thus, according to this pattern, is he to have the Israelites make the earthly tabernacle. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. There's a number of ways you can think about these promises being better. In the first place, it's a covenant, a, a unilateral covenant that God makes with man um, that we know as the gospel. So it traces all the way back to Adam and Eve, and the words that God speaks in their presence to the serpent, that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. So um, these promises are older in that sense, um, but they're also of a higher quality uh, than, and this covenant that Christ brings is of a higher quality of that which uh, is brought by Moses. 
And to really explain that is to explain the whole text of Hebrews. So, once more, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. And even look at the language of obtaining. But as it is, Christ has obtained. So, there's even this sense here, again, that points and directs toward his ascension as being the moment at which he obtains this. Uh, this ministry. And again, we talked about um, how ministry is a technical term for liturgy, but we're talking about his service as high priest. It's um, much more excellent than the old, here we would say maybe the Levitical priesthood and the old tabernacle, thus the new priesthood of Christ and his heavenly tabernacle. The old covenant being the cyanatic covenant, the new covenant that he mediates being the covenant of his cross and cup. And then these, with these covenants, not just merely the cross and cup, but the entire economy of the new covenant or ordering of the new covenant, contrasted with the economy and ordering of the Old Covenant. You know, in the Old Covenant you have circumcision and the sacrifices, etc., and all the laws that go with it. In the New Covenant you have baptism and the Lord's Supper, the cross, but then you have all the things we take for granted, all the articles of the Christian faith, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and all of these things. Okay, so then verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So again, the cyanatic covenant in view here, it's not faultless, it's not perfect, it doesn't accomplish the ultimate purpose that God has in mind. A second covenant is required to do this. For he finds fault with them when he says, now quoting from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That's the nature of the Old Covenant. If they don't continue in it, then the covenant is such that God will, remember, lay upon them the plagues that he laid upon the Egyptians. So they chose to not, to rebel and not be his chosen people. So they wanted to be like pagans, so then fine, you get treated like the pagan nations. They did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Um, There is grace within this old covenant. Thus God provides the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices. But it's not like the grace of the new covenant. Okay, so... Verse 10, then he goes about defining the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
So your study note's going to point to this being renewal, sanctification, regeneration. I'm kind of convinced of that, but more convinced that what is going on here is one that's more under, better understood in terms of like external, internal, or um, like the old covenant is concerned chiefly with the external, with the purification of the flesh and the body. We're going to see this in the next chapter. And the new covenant with the cleansing of the conscience, the inner man. So you can see an, an external, internal kind of distinction and thus the law of the old covenant that regulates what you eat and what you drink and what you put on regulates the body. The law of the new covenant is going to regulate the heart. It's going to be internal. You can see the case being made for this in the next chapter. That That's one way to look at it. Um, I likewise think that when you're thinking of the cross, you know, you, okay, here's, this would be another way to get at it, just albeit from a, a very different angle. Is the commandment to love your neighbor an old commandment or a new commandment? <laughs> In one sense, it's an old commandment. It's as old as the law itself. It's as old as the natural law. It's as old as creation. But it is also a new commandment from the lips of Christ that we would love one another as he has loved us. That is, it takes on, it's the old commandment brought forward, but it takes on a new shape and form, a cruciform shape and form, a, a cruciform and Christocentric reality in nature. So it's both an old commandment and a new commandment. You see John working through this in First John, whether it's an old commandment or a new commandment, it's both, but best understood as a new commandment. So, too, it's not as if there's no regeneration in the Old Covenant. Um, there is. Uh, those who are believers are regenerate. Um, but there is a sense in which this is um, all the more emphatic in the New Covenant that he gives. So, what do I mean by this? I mean, like, when you consider the cup that Christ gives, it's a cleansing of the heart and of the inner man. And really, in that sense, a new creation. Well, was there a regeneration before? Yeah. Is there a regeneration that that's even more now? Yeah. That's the point. Um, so that the uh, so there's continuity between the two covenants, between the. And then between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. But there's also nuance and difference. And the New Testament era is better. I will put my laws into their minds and write them down on their hearts. This is all the latter half of verse 10. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, there's also, yeah, there's also even an expansion here because the the laws aren't on tablets placed in a Ark of the Covenant. The laws are placed into the hearts and minds of believers. There's even a sense in which the whole... There's a sense in which the tabernacle has been put away altogether and the people have become the tabernacle or temple of God, of His Spirit. Anyway, I can digress, but that's uh, 
That, I think, is what we're to see here. Verse 11, And they shall not teach one another his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the greatest of them to the least. Um, now, of course, we, we think of this reaching its telos in the new heavens and the new earth when we're all face to face with the Lord. But there's a sense of increased intimacy here where, again, the Lord is doing something unique in his new covenant, coming to us himself. I think the more we focus on the new covenant, like if you ask Jesus, what is the new covenant? And then look at the red letters and find out where Jesus tells you what the new covenant is. He says, it's the new covenant in my blood in this cup, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So if you think of that, then the new heart is precisely Christ entering you and giving you his own heart. It's Christ giving you his own mind. There's no need to be taught, for it's Christ himself who teaches you, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. It's Christ then who lays his yoke upon you um, in gentleness and meekness and teaches you. So I think that all of that's in view and maybe helps us get more concrete with it. Now, the fact that this covenant is connected with the forgiveness of sins comes in the last verse quoted, chapter 12 in Hebrews, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now, whereas there is forgiveness in the old covenant, it's not as expansive because this is the contrast um, Look at the latter half of verse 9 again. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Here I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. So it's like, it's like grace, grace on steroids. Um, regeneration, regeneration on steroids. Blood atonement by the animals, blood atonement perfected in the blood of Christ. There's kind of this continuity, but the new covenant is superior. Now, what might we expect? We might expect the author of Hebrews to do a lengthy section on this, describing exactly why this is fitting and what it means and clarifying all of this for us definitively, but he doesn't. Verse 13, he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Again, one of these statements that leads us to believe that this is prior to 70 AD, that the temple slash tabernacle is still in place, um, but he knows that it's growing old and ready to be put away. As Jesus himself prophesied, the time will come when not one of these stones is remaining upon the other. We have an artificial chapter break at 9, which is fine because it's where, like if it wasn't difficult before, it gets really difficult now, both in the detail and in the point. But let's pause there and see if you have any reflections on what we've covered heretofore. Okay, it would, um, it would probably help us to just look at a couple of different things really quickly. Uh, if you have your Lutheran Study Bible, turn to page 139. And if you don't have a Lutheran Study Bible, pause the video, go to Amazon and buy one. <laughs> you'll instantly become 50% more attractive and you'll become a better student of the Bible to boot. All right, on page 139, 
what you're going to see here is a drawing of the tabernacle. And there's really nothing that helps clarify this section, but this at least kind of orients us. So what you see in the top right-hand corner of 139 is the entirety of the tabernacle, including the outer court. And then you see what's called the tent there, the tent proper. And then when you jump down to the bottom of the page, in the largest diagram, that's the tent blown up. And you see that the tent consists of two different places, the holy place and the, whole, and the most holy place. Do you see that? Okay. Um, in the holy place, you've got the table with the bread of presence. All of these things are going to be referenced. That's why I'm pointing them out. You also have there at the south the lampstand, sevenfold lampstand. And then you have the incense altar before the curtain or the veil. The curtain or the veil means what is, it's closed off. The most holy place is closed off. And that's going to be a, a huge theme so that when you are part of the Levitical priesthood, you wash yourself in the basin. You can see that up in the top right-hand corner. Outside of the tent is the basin. You wash yourself in the basin, and then you go about your uh, liturgy, your ministry, um, by going into the holy place with the bread of presence, the incense altar, and the lampstands. But what don't you do? You don't go through the curtain into the holiest of holies. Right? That You are closed off from that. Only one day out of the year can the right person with the right stuff go in there. And even then it's pretty dangerous. The right person being the high priest, the right stuff being blood. And then you can go, then you're permitted to go in there. Okay. Now, what the author of, of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to be riffing on this and he's going to create a theology. And again, it gets very complex, but I think maybe the most simple way to understand it is this, that, huh, see if I can articulate it, that what is closed to us are the heavens themselves. Right? This is one way he'd have us look at it, maybe the most simple way. What's closed to us is the heavens themselves. So Christ, by ascending into the heavens, passes through that curtain with his blood, and their ministers before the presence of God on our behalf. But he does this in such a way that the curtain is open and we ourselves are able to pass through into the presence of God. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going. We're going by the leadership, by Christ who precedes us, and by his blood he has opened the veil or the curtain and we are being prepared to go into the holy place. That's about as simple as I can make it. And probably even in making it that simple, I've distorted a thing or two, but that is what it is. We'll see how complex it is as we move forward. Did I see a hand or a question? Yeah, did you have a comment, Vicar? One thing that may help is um, the remembrance of the fact that when the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holiest of Holies, he actually wouldn't be wearing his ornate vestiture. 
They, he had a special set of only white garments that he would wear when he would go into the Holy of Holies. Okay. And so as you know, Christ, our high priest, has gone up um, and he brings us in his, in his uh, train, uh, we have those, those white garments in our baptism. Given us in baptism. Right. So then we're able to, that would further demonstrate that we're able to enter into this holiest of holies. Yeah. And that's, I mean, what we're talking about, like in different language, in different terms, would be the beatific vision, to be able to see God face to face yourself. That is the essence of heaven. It's what we're made for. It's why nothing else on earth fulfills and satisfies us. Um, the best we do is glimpse um, a greater glory. So, yeah, thank you for that. That helps him uh, make the point uh, as well. All right, well, then, while we're at it, so just... Um, I'm going to leave a, I'm going to leave a bookmark here because we may have to flip back, but, um, flip then, um, try to keep in mind, try to keep a mental picture of what you saw on page 139 with the tabernacle. And then just for the heck of it, um, 541, this isn't nearly as important, but 541 will show us, uh, Solomon's temple. And of course, that's destroyed and reconstructed, thus the second temple. But the, uh, and then Herod, of course, is renovating and doing all that stuff. But nonetheless, the floor plan remains essentially the same. The second temple is far less glorious. But here too, then on page 541, you're going to see how the tent, um, now made more substantive in the temple, still has these two places. The most holy place, that's where you see the uh, cherubim, and you see how they're depicted as winged lions. It's great. It's more accurate. And then the holy place um, is separate and distinct from that. And there you can see the little figure before the altar of incense. So essentially the floor plan remains the same, and you've got this distinction between the most holy place and the holy place. Um, down at the very bottom of page 541, you kind of get that view from above, and that can help you to see, too, that, again, the point being that the most holy place is shut off except under the most extraordinary circumstances. If you're your av an average Levitical priest, you don't go in there. If you're your, an average Israelite, you don't go in there. Okay, that's the So we're closed off. Now, if you think of the way that the temple and tabernacle are constructed too, that curtain or that veil is woven um, in the colors of what would look like the night sky with the angels. So, and angel cherubim are embroidered upon it. So the idea of the, uh, of that is that that's the holy place you're entering into like sort of where heaven and earth meet, the footstool of the heavenly throne. That to go in there is to go into heaven. So you can't go there um, anytime you want. Now what Christ is going to do is, is open that curtain and, um, with, and go in with his blood making full atonement such that now God's people, all of us collectively, Jew and Gentile, can go into that holy place and be, and stand before God. So that's, um, that's yet to come obviously, but that, hopefully we'll kind of give you a sense and at least a landscape um, for what's coming next in chapter 9. Any, any, did I see a hand here?
Maybe your last comment would clarify this. I'm struggling with the vagueness of this. When is this transpiring? Mm, yeah. Or has it already on our behalf? I don't, I don't. Yeah, if you're struggling with the vagueness of it, hold on to your, your armrests because this roller coaster hasn't even begun to take off. Um, so let me try to, let me try again. And I, I really do kind of worry that in simplifying it to this level, I might be oversimplifying it and distorting it. So pardon me if that is what I'm doing. But, um, when Christ dies on the cross, okay, um, his blood is shed. But what actually occurs is now he's raised from the dead. He shows himself for 40 days to his apostles, eyewitnesses, in fact, over 500 eyewitnesses, doing things like eating fish and saying, touch my wounds and demonstrating that it's truly he and his body. And then after those 40 days, he ascends into heaven. This is where, if you recall, in Revelation, when John goes up to the throne room, he sees the one seated upon the throne, the Father. He sees the great candle, sevenfold candelabra, the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, but who doesn't he see? The Son. And there's, there's this great drama that unfolds about who's worthy to open the scrolls. And no one is found worthy to open the scrolls. And suddenly what appears is the Lamb. The Lamb who stands and yet as one having been slain. And we see him take his place in the midst of the Trinity. He alone is worthy to open those scrolls. Now what has just happened? John has just witnessed the ascension of Jesus and the coronation of Jesus. And along with his coronation comes his ordination as the high priest. Um, now, changing frames, at his ascension, the high priest takes the blood that he shed on the cross and enters the heavens with it to appear before God. So then opening the heavens, opening the curtains, that we also might follow him in. Okay. Um, so it's just a different frame and a different way of looking at it. Remember, we've got this, we've got this thing called the ascension of Jesus that actually happened. And then we've got all these different camera angles put on it, right? And you might even, you might even think like, well, one culture would understand it this way and another culture would understand it that way. That's almost what the biblical accounts are. Look at what it looks like from the language and imagery of the Old Testament priesthood. Look at what it looks like from the language and imagery of um, anointing and and being coronated as king of Israel. Look at it from, an, from a cosmic angle. Um, yeah, yeah, look, look at it. Um, and I think even, even just the... When you think of the, you think of the throne... And the lamb and the candelabra, the father, the son, and the spirit, they all share one interpenetrating visual reality with each other as well. So that when you're looking at the candelabra, the flames, you're looking at the eyes of the lamb. When you're looking at the eyes, when you're looking at the lamb, you're looking at the image of the one who's seated upon the throne, whose glory is otherwise inexpressible. Okay. So what we're doing is we're looking at at this reality through all these different biblical lenses. That's what the scriptures are doing for us, allowing us to perceive this reality um, 
by the word through faith. Okay, so um, the author of Hebrews showing us that Christ is going to um, be superior to the Levitical priesthood and the earthly high priest who can enter in once per year with the blood of beasts that he is offering in part on account of his own sinfulness and the sin of the people. And we're going to say, look at the new covenant, Christ as our high priest, entering into the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle, with his own blood, once and for all, being able to stay and abide there, and indeed make a way for us also to enter in. How much greater is this covenant than the covenant that preceded it? That's the, that's the point. Again, what is his pastoral point? Why on earth would you go, why on earth would you go back to the old covenant? Just to avoid suffering? It's not worth it. It would be better to suffer and die and have the cosmic covenant that Christ has come to, come to bring us. All right. Okay. Does the Jewish nation what do you mean by oh the present day Jewish nation? They're by I mean they're more or less out to lunch. It yeah. I mean some of them are waiting for a Messiah. Some I mean, could you even imagine a Messiah that fulfills the scriptures more than Jesus? It's impossible. It's impossible. So they're still waiting for a Messiah. They're still waiting for, or they, or they've given up altogether, or they think it's just about being a good person, or they don't even think they're going to heaven at all. Uh, they think that they, once you die, that's it. Uh, so you've got uh, all of that's modern Judaism. It's a mess. I mean, they need to be converted. They're every bit as every bit as pagan as pagans. I mean, insofar as they have the, the Old Testament scriptures, they still have more than the pagans. But it's like a veil's over their face. And even Paul describes it as that way. Okay, so should we get into the tough part? It's tough in detail, it's tough in theme. So we'll have to just bear with each other. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant, Sinaitic covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That's kind of key. Our minds are on the earth and our minds are going to be on the body. Our minds are going to be on the external things. All of those kind of form a nexus. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of presence. Okay, that's the holy place that we just saw. The lampstand, the table, and the bread is on the table. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, okay, the first curtain is when you enter into the tent proper. The second curtain is what separates the holy place from the holiest of holies. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense. Rutro. Why is that in the holiest of holies? We just saw in the picture that it was in the holy place. Okay, so probably, I mean, Kleinig spends like two pages on this, and I could just read it to you, and that would be ten minutes later. Um, probably what's going on here 
is that the altar of incense, which was in the holy place, had um, a censer. Okay, uh, you, you know those big things that you put incense in and you swing it around and gets incense smoke everywhere? It had a censer. And on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the high priest would go in, um, that censer would also go in. And in fact, the blood of the lamb was placed upon, not upon, not only upon the mercy seat, but upon this censer, so that the censer itself could go in. So it seems to be the case that because his mind is on like going into this second place, you have into the holiest of holies, um, where you have uh, the Ark of the Covenant. You also have the altar of incense, in effect, going in via the um, censer. So this could be a reference to the censer used in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, thus belonging to or in the most holy place. If you want more detail than that, you've got to go into Kleinig yourself. I'll, let, I'll loan you my copy. You can read it. It's like two pages. It'll take you 40 minutes. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Okay, so um, anyway, what are we doing? Well, we've described the holy place and its furniture. Now we're describing the most holy place and its furniture. So like I said, difficult even in the details. Now after mention this altar of incense, which... The censer could be in view. You have, and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold. So the Ark of the Covenant obviously is in the Holiest of Holies. And then in which, so inside of this Ark, you have the golden urn holding the manna. Remember the bread from heaven? And then you have also Aaron's staff um, that budded. And Aaron's staff, of course, um, comes to be representative of the ministry as well, the Levitical ministry. And the tables of the covenant. So the two stone tablets in which were inscribed the, the law by the finger of God. Okay, above it, now it's still properly part of it, but above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, you have the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The mercy seat sometimes also described as the covering or the lid of the ark. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, Kleinick thinks that this means that the author of Hebrews and his community understand that all of these things have important symbolic significance that are that is now fulfilled by Christ. And he just doesn't want to go into that detail and that teaching right now. So we're moving on. Um, he is clearly not saying, uh, these things are of ancient days and we don't have any clue what they meant or if they were, uh, we don't have any details about it. That, that doesn't seem fitting at all. He's got tons of details and tons of knowledge about it. Okay. So, yeah, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, simply meaning like, I'm not going to do a sermon on each one of these and how it's fulfilled in Christ. I could which I like that as a pastoral move. I use that all the time. Of these, I just need to adopt the biblical language. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. All right, verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section 
performing their ritual duties. Now that's what I described. This is kind of the daily ritual duty of the Levitical priests. Verse 7, but into the second, into the holiest of holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Here is another detail that, um, again, Kleinig, I think, spends uh, quite, a, quite a little bit of time on. Um, drop down to your study note, unintentional sins. Though the Day of Atonement was for all sins, Leviticus 16, the sinful ignorance of priests and people is stressed here. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Um, there is no easy answer. Kleinig um, talks about this at some length. If you're fascinated by that, let me know. We'll talk about that detail after class. Um, but yeah, this is just one more example of how even in the details, the section is kind of difficult. Hope you're holding on. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, why is it plural? We don't know. It's another detail that is difficult to understand, and Kleinig spends quite a bit of time on it. But the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. All right, well, what has just been spoken? That you can't go from the holy place into the holiest of holies. Thus, the Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy place or places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. All right, that's the part that's confusing at this point, as long as the first section is still standing. But if you just get rid of that for the time being, it seems clear enough. The holy place is not yet open. That's what's being indicated. Okay. More on that second clause in a minute, because we have this parenthetical in 9, which is symbolic for the present age. Okay. Namely, that first section still standing is symbolic for the present age. The first session, section has to be brought down, the present age has to be brought down. That's and then what do you have? You have the holy place with access open to it. So in the destruction of the earthly temple, this again is an oversimplification, but in the destruction of the earthly temple, you see a destruction of this age, an entrance into the new age, wherein the curtain is removed and the holiest of holies is accessible to us. Make some sense? <laughs> yeah, so when Christ dies, the curtain is torn in half. Um, maybe. Maybe that has something to do with this. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think that's in view here. I think he's just more ne nebulous and generic here. Yeah. So the Gentiles weren't they technically weren't allowed because they were only on the outside court. Mm -hmm. Remember where the Greek F fell off the page, which they 
Yeah. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Um, okay, so there's a few questions circling around. Let me try my best to ad to address them. Um, so, I don't think that the author of Hebrews is doing any commentary on the fact that the curtain tore at the crucifixion of Jesus. I don't think that's in his mind. If it is, it's not evident. Okay. Can we draw some parallels between that? Yeah, maybe we can, but that's us drawing the parallels and the connections, not the author of Hebrews himself. What happens when the when the temple curtain is destroyed at the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, in one place, the temple itself ceases to be the temple. It's a judgment upon the earthly temple because why? Christ's body is the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. So in one sense, it is a symbolic action and mark showing that the temple of and God's holiest of holies, his presence, it now exists somewhere else. And in this way of thinking, it exists really in the body of Christ. Christ's body, see, these are different theologies. These are different angles, different, completely different takes on the same event. And in this event, you, um, Christ's body is the temple. And by participating in the Holy Sacrament, receiving his body and blood, receiving his body, you enter, cleansed by his blood, you are fit to enter, and you enter into communion with the Holy One of Israel through the flesh of Jesus, who is the temple. Does that make sense? Just a different theology. It's true. Just a different theology. It's simpler in some ways. What else might be going on with the temple curtain? I mean... Uh, so if you were to take kind of the principles of here, of this part of Hebrews and extract them, then you could say that by the death of Christ, the heavens have been torn open. Because that's really what the curtain represents in the temple between the holy place and the holiest of holies is God's people on earth, but heaven shut to them. And then by Christ's death, the curtain between heaven and earth is torn in half or torn open. Another parallel way to think of this would be at the baptism of Jesus. Effectively, the same thing happens. The heavens aren't just like gently open so that the bird can slip through and then they close back up. The heavens are torn open, rent open. Okay, so what God, what Christ is doing in having the sins of the world poured upon him and bearing those sins to the cross is he's opening, uh, the, the curtain between heaven and earth. Okay, both of those takes would be more accurate than your average kind of treatment of what, you know, I mean, I some people say like the curtain's destroyed, it means we have ac indirect access with God now or something like that. It's like, it's not a biblical idea. Christ is always the mediator. We always have access to God only in and through Christ, only in and through the means he gives us. Okay, and then, yeah, we can, I mean, there's some ways in which, again, we could talk about, like, how how this is cosmic in scope, and so we as Gentiles are brought in as well, but I don't think that these are thoughts native to the text. I don't think that these are the thoughts going on in the author of Hebrews' mind. I think what his assumption here is um, that he's speaking to Christians. It doesn't matter, then, if you're Jew or Greek, you're a Christian. And so the point is that just as in the old tabernacle, the way to heaven was shut, now in the new covenant, we're, we're talking about not the temple on earth, which is just the model of what's in heaven. We're talking about the thing in heaven. 
We're talking about that veil being opened by Christ, literally and truly, when he takes his blood into the heavenly places, opening that curtain for us, making atonement for our sins, and opening that curtain such that we can follow him in and uh, be in the holiest of holies with Christ and with God. And I think that that's what Revelation is depicting. Okay, so we can get a lot more complex and detailed on this. Kleinig spends multiple pages giving us all the different options of what these different phrases can mean and how it changes our interpretation. I hope that I've just provided you with a very simple, basic, pastoral, true um, account so that you can wrap your head around it. Sorry, I know you were trying to wrap up, so... You could tell. Uh, I, had the pedal, the, yeah. I had the pedal to the metal, but you had my bumper chained yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. So I'll just ask the question you don't, you don't have to answer. Um, what would the dispensationalists do with this? Oh, no. Well, I mean, would they be happy? I mean, I can see them getting excited. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a dispensationalist would. Anytime you have a transition, they're going to say, ha-ha, here's definitive proof that we've tra transitioned into a new dispensation. But that's ridiculous. And just because we have a transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant um, doesn't mean we have a dispensation. We have two different covenants and two different economies, but salvation within the Old Covenant remains salvation within the New Covenant. That is that we are declared righteous by faith. And we know that because when the New Testament authors talk about righteousness by faith on account of Christ, their basis for doing so is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant text. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm hmm. You said the curtain was, looked like dark blue and looked like space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when you, yeah, when you look at the colors, it's, um, all like lavenders, blues, purples. It's, um, and then there's angels embroidered on it. The idea that, you, so that, I mean, obviously, if you're your average Israelite, you didn't get to go in there. But as a priest, you would go in there and you would say, there are the heavens in which and behind which lies the throne of God. Yeah, that's the theology. So you're, you're offering incense on the incense altar, um, right there. And your, your prayers, the incense is ascending, as it were, into heaven, right? And, um, into the veil where, where God is, where God is enthroned. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then, um, Right, and then so where you would see this is if you wanted to see Isaiah six, um, he that's essentially his vision, uh, is he sees like the veil, all of a sudden actually become space and the throne of God and the angels and archangels and the singing back and forth of the seraphim. So all those things that are modeled in the earthly model, he sees the actual reality in heaven, kind of interposed over those. Yeah, it's all very high tech. In the movie, I'm created in my head. That is. When we, <laughs> yeah, our chancel renovation. We're gonna make it look like Revelation. <laughs> the creatures with all the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. We're gonna need a lot of fundraising. That's a lot of brownies sold at the bake sale. All right. Barry, did you have a comment or question? You're all right? Okay. All right. So um, 
if we uh, if we go okay into verse nine, now obviously we had the parenthetical, which is symbolic for the present age. Okay, um, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All right, here is where I was talking about, you know, in Jeremiah, you've got this trans, this emphasis on the heart. The previous covenant emphasized the body. The new covenant emphasizes the heart. And you see that arranged here in the distinction between body and conscience. All right, so... According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshippers. This is the claim of the author of Hebrews. The Old Testament law doesn't affect the conscience. It's there to sanctify you in your body. Even if it can cleanse the conscience, it can do so only temporarily. It has to be recurrent with another sacrifice. Right? Um, Verse 10, but these, that is the Old Testament regulations, the Old Testament arrangement, deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed upon until the time of Reformation. Well, what's the Reformation? The New Covenant. This is where Christ is a reformer. It's kind of fun. But Christ is a reformer bringing a new covenant. And what do you think the new covenant's going to do? It's not going to emphasize merely the body, but rather the conscience and not the conscience such that it has to constantly be adjusted by okay well there was a new sacrifice so now my conscience is but a sacrifice made once and for all that will cleanse the conscience once and for all now i mean obviously concretely when do we experience that in death once the old adam has been put to death okay and then the but the point is that it's possible it's done in christ I mean, that's got regeneration in part, which I would, I would maybe tie that into the idea we saw in Jeremiah, as the study yeah. note does. Yeah, the new heart being a regenerate heart. But I think, I mean, more in view here is that the, that the Old Testament fails because it cannot perfectly cleanse the conscience. The New Testament succeeds because it can perfectly cleanse the conscience. So, obviously, both rights have to do with cleansing. Both rights deal with sin, and by rights I mean covenants. Uh, but the new is superior because it, in fact, cleanses the conscience. And we're going to see that in the verses to come, or maybe not till a little while. I, I should probably just blow on ahead so we can at least grab this idea. Okay, so again, um, these things cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, there's conscience, keep that in mind, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. So conscience and body are set in opposition to each other, imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared, that's the time of Reformation, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So we're talking about the heavenly tent, not the earthly tent. 
The old covenant is of the earthly tent. The new covenant is of the heavenly tent. Verse 12, he entered, Christ entered once for all into the holy places. Not recurrently, that's the old way, but he once for all. And not in the earthly holy place, but in the heavenly holy place. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, that's earthly, but by means of his own blood, that's heavenly. Thus securing an eternal redemption, whereas the uh, earthly tabernacle and the old covenant is a recurrent, have to constantly keep up redemption. This that he gives is an eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's reference to numbers, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now what do you think that's going to be opposed to? The conscience. So if all of this stuff of the old earthly cyanatic covenant and earthly tabernacle sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the heavenly reality, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, sins, to serve the living God. All right, now look what has happened here. I'll try to hit the main point. So obviously we've been doing the compare-contrast. The old was merely for the flesh. The new is for the conscience. The old is temporal and repeating. The new is eternal and not repeating. Okay, the new is in fact... um, done by the blood of Christ, this is verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now you can see that again that he's the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice or victim. And his role is to purify our conscience from all sins, from all works of death, from dead works, to serve, and there's the liturgical, to serve the living God. So not only is he superior in terms of what he does through his I mean, it's just in every way. It's not earthly, it's heavenly. It's not repeating, it's once and for all. Um, It's not of human origin, but of divine origin through the eternal spirit. And then the old covenant, the priests remain the priests and everybody else remains outside. The new covenant, he cleanses our conscience from dead works that we might serve. And there's the technical uh, liturgical language that we might become liturgists of the living God, that we might become priests of the living God. So what would we say after all the dust settles of this that um, that the heavenly that the heavenly temple has yeah the heavenly tabernacle has been cleansed by Christ the veil has been lifted his he has entered in with his blood and he's opened it and cleansed us such that we also can come in with the liturgy of God so this is why like in Revelation heaven is this um, con- there's a constant liturgy going on. It's a divine service constantly going on with angels antiphonally back and forth and songs being sung um, so that when we go into heaven, we join in this temple of God to see God face to face in the holy place and we join the ongoing heavenly liturgy. So, um, 
Yeah, in a sense, yeah, in a sense that that's present. I would say it's just present, not even yet in the fullness, but it's a present reality in heaven. When we when we die and our bodies go, we go up into heaven, and we're participants in this heavenly liturgy,、mm-hmm. and we see God just not yet with our eyes, but we see Him nonetheless.、Um, our souls are there. Our souls look like our bodies. We have all the same faculties, basically, as we have in our bodies. Um, but the full climax of all of this is not just going to heaven. I mean, it's climactic because we see what we have only believed, and this is a—I mean, it's completely otherworldly and amazing and awesome and paradise and glory and all the rest. But it's not the final form. The final form is the new heavens and the new earth. The final form is described not in Revelation four, five, and seven, but rather in、um, rather in twenty-one and twenty-two. So the new heavens and the new earth to be raised in our body, to have our bodies perfected, to have, you know, and there's a sense. I don't know if we're here yet.、Uh, one of the reflections you can have on this. Well, shoot, why am I doing this? It's too hard. So, in the same way that the old covenant corresponds with the body and the flesh, and the new covenant with the conscience. Okay, then. Then we are waiting to be cut off from the body and the flesh and from the old covenant ourselves, that we might become purely of the new covenant, purely conscious with con- conscience, with conscience cleansed before God. But then the finality of that is to be raised in our bodies, made perfect, so that flesh and conscience, body and conscience, are united as one in one worship with God. And then, likewise, that corresponds to earth and heaven. You see, so flesh and conscience correspond to earth and heaven, correspond to old and new. You see how these things are all how he's working with these patterns, weaving them together. That's like the I tried to give you the one hundred one version. That's like the one hundred two version, and there's probably like one hundred three and one hundred four too. But that's the best I can do for you today. So next week, Holy Week, we're going to、um, be looking at、uh, not having class because we'll be having Monday Thursday. At noon and seven here next week, and then two weeks we'll pick back up in Hebrews. If you have any questions, I'll try to deal with them then when I'm wiser and more sanctified. <laughs> The Lord be with you.